Chapter Five of the Sea Witch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jerry Dixon. The Sea Witch by Murray Maturine Ballou. Chapter Five. The Naval Officer. The reader will think that seven-league boots, the storyteller's prerogative, are in special demand as it regards our story, for once more we must return through a period of years to the date or thereabouts on which our story opens. It was on one of those close, sultry afternoons that characterized the climate of summer in India that two of our characters were seated together in a graceful and rather elegant villa in the environs of Calcutta. The air of the lady, for the couple were of either sex, was one of beauty and repose. She was evidently listening to the gallant speech of her companion with respect, but without interest, while on his part the most casual observer might have read in his voice, his features, and his words, the accent, the bearing, the language of love. The lady was a gentle being of surpassing beauty, with black eyes, jetty hair, and brilliant complexion. There was little of the characteristics of the East in her appearance, though she seemed to be quite at home beneath the Indian sun. She was of the middle height, perhaps a little too slender and delicate in form to meet a painter's idea of perfection, but yet just such an idol as a poet would have worshipped. She was strikingly handsome, and there was a brilliancy and spirit in the glance of her dark eyes that told of much character and much depth of feeling and while you gazed at her now, sitting beneath the broad piazza, you would have detected a shadow ever and anon across her brow, as though the words of him by her side aroused some unpleasant memory, and diverted her thoughts rather to past scenes than to the consideration of his immediate remarks. The gentleman, who seemed to be pleading an unsuccessful suit, wore the undress uniform of the English Navy, and in the outer harbor, in view of the very spot where they sat, there rode a sloop of war with St. George's Cross floating at her peak. The officer was young, but bore the insignia of his rank upon his person, which showed him to be the captain of yonder proud vessel. He might have been five or six and twenty, but scarcely more, and bore about him those unmistakable tokens of gentle birth which will shine through the coarsest as well as the finest attire. The lady was not regarding him now. Her eyes were bent on the distant sea, but still he pleaded, still urged in gentle tones the suit he brought. I see Miss Huntington has some more favored swain on whom to bestow her favors, but I am sure that she has no truer friend or more ardent admirer. You are altogether mistaken in your premises, she said coolly, as she tossed her fragrant fan of sandalwood, perfuming the soft atmosphere about them. A subject who sues for a favorite court, Miss Huntington, if he is unsuccessful, thinks himself at least entitled to know the reason why he is denied. But suppose the court declines to give him a reason, said the lady, still coolly. Its decision admits of no appeal, I must acknowledge, replied her suitor. Then reason I have none, Captain, and so pray let that suffice. But Miss Huntington, surely— "'Nay, Captain,' she said at last, weary of his importunity, "'you know well my feelings. "'Far be it for me to play for one moment the coquette's part. "'I thank you for the compliment you pay me by these assurances, 
but you are fully aware that I can never encourage a suit that finds no response in my heart. I trust that no word or act of mine has ever deceived you for one moment. No, Miss Huntington, you have ever been thus cold and impassive towards me, ever turning a deaf ear to my prayer. Why, why can you not love me? Nay, Captain, we will not enter into particulars. It is needless, it is worse than needless, and a matter that is exceedingly unpleasant to me. I must earnestly beg, sir, that you will not again refer to this subject under any circumstance. Your commands are law to me, Miss Huntington, answered the discomfited lover, as he rose from the seat he had occupied by her side, and turned partially away. It was well he did so, for had she seen the demoniac expression of his countenance as he struggled to control the vehemence of his feelings, she would have feared that he might do either her or himself violence. May I not hope that years of fond attachment, years of continued assiduity, may yet outweigh your indifference, Miss Huntington? he said earnestly. Indeed, indeed, no. You do but pain me by this countenance of a subject that— Ah, mother, she said, interrupting herself, I have been looking at the captain's ship yonder. Is she not a noble craft? And how daintily she floats upon the waters. A ship is always a beautiful sight, my child, and especially so when she bears the flag that we see flaunting gracefully from that vessel. When do you sail, captain? asked Mrs. Huntington, who had just joined her daughter on the piazza, and did not observe the officer's confusion. The ship rides by a single anchor, madam, and only waits her commander, he replied, rather mechanically than otherwise, as he turned his glance seaward. So soon? I'd hoped you were to favor us with a longer stay, said the mother. The officer looked towards the daughter, as though he wished it had been her that had expressed such a desire. But she still gazed at the distant ship, and he saw no change in her handsome features. We officers are not masters of our own time, madam, and can rarely consult our own wishes as to a cruising ground. But I frankly own that it was something more than mere accident which brought me this time to Calcutta. As he said this, his eyes again wandered towards her daughter's face, but it was still cold, impassive and beautiful as before, while she gazed on that distant sea. He paused for a moment more, almost trembling with suppressed emotions of disappointment chagrin and anger, and seemed at a loss what to say further. He felt constrained, and wished that he might have seen the daughter for a moment more alone. Farewell is an unpleasant word to say, ladies, he said at last, still controlling his feelings with a masterly effort. Then offering a hand to the mother, he bowed respectfully and said, Goodbye, and to her, who now turned with evident feeling evinced in her lovely face at the idea of a long parting, he offered his hand, which was frankly pressed, while he said, I carry away a heavy heart to see with me, Miss Huntington. Could it be weighed, it would overballast yonder ship. Farewell, Captain. A happy and safe voyage to you, she answered, with assumed gaiety of tone, but there was no reply. He bowed low and hastened away with a spirit of disappointment clouding his sunburned features. The view which might be had from the window commanded a continuous sight of the road that the young officer must traverse to reach the ship, and though she had treated him thus coldly, and had so decidedly declined his suit, 
yet here lingered some strange interest about him in her mind as was evinced by her now repairing to the window and sitting behind the broad shadow of its painted screen where she watched his approach to the landing near the city gates and saw the sturdy boatmen dip their oars in regular time propelling the boat with arrow-like speed to the ship's side where its master hastened upon deck and disappeared while the boat was hoisted to the quarter davits anon she saw the sheets fall from the ponderous yards and sheeted home the anchor gradually raised to her bow the yard squared to bring her with her head to the sea and then a clear white cloud of smoke burst from her bows as she gathered steerage way and a dull heavy report of distant ordnance boomed upon the ear of the listening girl unanswered by a deep sigh from her own bosom a sigh not for him who had just left her but for some kindred association that his presence aroused the villa where we have introduced the reader was that of the late edward huntington a successful english merchant who had resided many years in india and had realized a fortune which he had proposed to return to his native land to enjoy with his wife and only child but death had stepped in to put an abrupt end to his hopes and to render abortive all his well-arranged plans some twelve months previous to the period of which we have spoken mrs huntington the widow had remained in calcutta to settle up her husband's affairs and this done she determined to embark at once with her daughter for england where her relatives friends and early associations were all located miss huntington as the reader may have gathered was no coquette her great beauty and real loveliness of character had challenged the admiration of many a rich grandee and many an eminent character among her own countrymen in this distant land but no one had seemed to make the least impression upon her heart the gayest and wittiest found in her one quite their equal the thoughtful and pathetic were equally at home by her side but her heart to them seemed encased in iron so cold and immovable it continued to all the assaults that gallantry made against its fastness and yet no one who knew her really doubted the tenderness of her feelings and the sensibility of her heart her beauty was quite matured that is she must have numbered at least twenty years but there was still a girlish loveliness a childlike parody and sincerity in all she said and did that showed the real freshness of her heart and innocence of her mind far too pure and good and gentle was she for him who had so earnestly sued for her hand as we have seen beneath a gentlemanly exterior that other whom we have seen depart from her side under such peculiar circumstances hid a spirit of petty meanness and violence of temper a soul that hardly merited the name and which made him enemies everywhere friends nowhere robert bramble for this was he the same whom the reader has seen as a boy at home in bramble park had not improved in spirit or manliness by advance in years the declining pecuniary fortune of his father's house to which we have before alluded had led him early to seek employment in the navy and by dint of influence and attention to his profession he had gradually risen to the position in which we have found him as a commander in her majesty's service on the india station that he loved the widow's daughter was true that is to say as sincerely as he was capable of loving any one but his soul was too selfish to entertain true love for another the same spirit that had led him to the petty oppressions and the ceaseless annoyances which he had exercised towards his younger brother in childhood 
still actuated him and there was not a gleam of that chivalric spirit which his profession usually inspires in those who adopt it as a calling shining within the recesses of his breast entirely unlike miss huntington in every particular we have yet seen that he exercised some singular power over her that is so far as to really interest her beyond even a degree that she was willing to exhibit before him what and why this was so must more clearly appear in the course of the story as it progresses mrs huntington was a lady of polished manner and cultivated intellect belonging to what might be termed the old school of english gentlewomen she had reared her only child with jealous care and assiduous attention so that her mind had been richly stored in classic lore and her hands duly instructed in domestic duties there was no mock modesty about the mother she was straightforward and literal in all she said or did evidently of excellent family she was sufficiently assured of her position not to be sensitive about its recognition by others and preferred to instill into her daughter's mind sound wholesome principles to useless and giddy accomplishments and yet the daughter was accomplished an excellent musician upon the piano and harp and a vocalist of rare sweetness and perfection of execution as well as mistress of other usual studies of her sex but the idea we would convey is that the mother had rather endeavored to fill her child's mind with real information and knowledge than to teach her that the chief end and aim of life was to learn how to captivate a husband she preferred to make her daughter a true and noble-hearted woman possessed of intrinsic excellence rather than to make her marketable for matrimonial sale to give her something that would prove to her under any and all circumstances a reliance viz sound principles and an excellent education mother how long before we shall turn our face towards england said the daughter soon after the scene which we have described of the sailing ship and her commander within the month i hope my child i have already directed the solicitor to close up all his business relative to your father's estate and the next homeward-bound ship may bear us in it i shall feel sad to leave our peaceful home here mother for save my dear father's death has been very pleasant very happy to be here there are many dear associates that must ever hang about its memory my dear but after all we shall be returning to our native land and that is a sweet thought it is some twelve years since we lost sight of english soil i remember it most vividly said the child recalling the past ay as though it were but yesterday that night as she lay sleeping in her daintily furnished apartment into which the soft night air was admitted through sweet geranium and mignonette which bloomed and shed their perfume with rare sweetness she dreamed of her native land of him who had that day left her so disappointed of her childhood and all its happy memories and of much that we will not refer to lest we anticipate our story end of chapter five recording by jerry dixon zephyr hills florida